While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. podcast about the books that you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And we're here to read the books that you haven't read yet. <laughs> Can we get the energy level up a little bit? Let's, let's read some books. Ooh, let's read those books. Let's read those books. Boom, boom. Um, I want to play some jock listened... I just tried to hum jock jams and I messed up. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you jock jams me and I'll explain like the premise of the show. <laughs> so what we do every week is one of us reads a book and then explains it to the other one and to the audience. And everybody has a really good time. <laughs> and then sometimes we move it, move it. Read. That's my book jams. Book jams. Craig, what, tell me what you read this week. Okay, and so, then let's talk about other stuff. Great. <laughs> I thought I was reading the first Agatha Christie novel. Uh, you said you were, but I, you... I was fairly certain I was. I was not. I was reading the sixth <laughs> Agatha Christie novel, I'm fairly certain. Pretty um, close. Yeah, you know. it's. Uh, it was called The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. I, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um. It was written in 1926 by Dame Agatha Christie. Dame, that's the best. Like, I didn't, I guess it makes sense that the, like, the female counterpart of a knight would be a dame, but I just never thought about it. I think like, dame I is kind of cooler. I didn't know, I didn't know that there were dame commanders, <laughs> which I think is <laughs> the best. I mean, Dame Grand Cross is technically better, but. I think Dame Commander is the um, cooler When name. you're playing chess, dames actually can move in like a C pattern, not an L. You're making that up, right? Depends on what type of chess you play. What kind of chess are you playing? Chess with dames. <laughs> I have the app, I think. Chess with dames. Is that just like Tinder? Chess with dames? <laughs> no, it's like words with friends. That's what I was playing. I was making a joke. Tinder is something else. I was just talking to somebody about Tinder the other day, and it sounds really confusing. Yeah, I don't. I don't. That's that's my that's my contribution to that discussion. Isn't that just like that montage from the Social Network where they play Hot or Not to creepy Trent Reznor music? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But exactly. But it's in your phone, and it's specifically for you to GPS a hookup. Yeah. There's no jokes here. We're just explaining Tinder, right? No, we're just <laughs> I don't even think we're doing that good of a job. It's like it's like twelve twenty on a Friday night. You know, um, time to talk been, about books. We've both been working basically all day because we're idiots. I, I don't think because because we have a lot of weddings to go to this weekend, but I think it's making it it's making us tireder. <laughs> Yeah, I am preemptively tired for this summer. We are so tired, we don't know if we've talked about this on the podcast already. That's Our wedding, the wedding gauntlet? Yeah, the wedding gauntlet. 
We are in we are in the middle of three weddings in ten days. Is a lot. Eight days. Eight days? I don't even can't days. I'm I'm not sure. I've seen that Cameron Diaz movie though. <laughs> three weddings in ten days. It's we're very excited to help our friends celebrate their love and we're super flattered that they all want us there and we're glad to be going and dressing up and getting free food and you know all the important stuff but man like two this weekend is one wedding on saturday and one wedding on sunday and that's just that's a lot of love to celebrate it's a lot of love and let's be honest i can't not dance at weddings it's not my i i feel the rhythm i feel the ride hop on the floor it's wedding time I like that. I like that rhyme you just dropped. I I have certain songs that compel me to to do that. Like you were just full on all the time. I need like I need some Africa. I need oh, some Hey Ya or something. I, I need that was pretty good. Particular songs to to get my feet moving in a dancing fashion. That last DJ did play. <laughs> <laughs> that last DJ did play shout a little too early. It was a little, and he played Don't Stop Believing a little early, too. But, I mean, that wedding just threw me off because it was still daylight out, and yeah. I don't think I've ever heard Don't Stop Believing <laughs> before when the sun has been out before. <laughs> yeah, I tend not to listen to the Black Eyed Peas when the sun is up, either. Or when the sun is down. I just generally try to avoid the Black Eyed Peas. Well, I would like to stop avoiding talking about Agatha Christie. So let's Yeah, let's let's, let's get to Dame Agatha Christie. Dame. What do you what, what can you tell me about her? She's the best-selling novelist ever. Okay. I don't know if you knew that. She I know I know it now. Sold more books than anyone ever. Um according to the Guinness Book of World Records cuz let's trust all of our records with people who make beer and are probably drunk. She's the best-selling novelist and uh her estate says apparently that her collected works come in behind Shakespeare stuff and the Bible in terms of sales. So I have her down as the third best selling author after Shakespeare and God. <laughs> her best seller well <laughs> The Bible by God. <laughs> it's the Bible by God. Um I have her uh, her bestseller is And Then There Were None, which is another one of those trap a bunch trap a bunch of people in a room mysteries. Okay. Um, the book that we're going to talk about today, uh, last year was voted the best crime novel ever, according to the Crime Writers Association, which sounds like it has <laughs> the best conventions. It's just probably yeah, what, escape what is, rooms and murder mysteries. Yeah, what is murder mystery game like at the Crime Writers Association? <laughs> it's probably awesome. Or it's the most frustrating thing ever. It, it probably like <laughs> twists in on itself and just eats its own tail. Um, she was made a dame in 1971. Uh, and I know that she wrote... It was Queen Elizabeth. Um, and I know that she uh, wrote her famous play, The Mousetrap, uh, because the queen asked her for a play. The queen was such a big fan of Agatha Christie that she said, Write me a play! And I feel like I've told this. Have I told this story before in the podcast? Because I seem to remember doing a bad Queen voice before, and this is the only. <laughs> <laughs> and then that that book was later adapted into a best-selling board game. So hey, um, that is also the longest-running board game of all. And by board game, I mean play of all time. Uh, 
at over 25,000 performances uh, in London. How many years is that? And how many years did it run continuously? It's still you know? running, Andrew. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, it started in 1952. And when I saw it in 2008, it was still enjoyable. Uh, there's a part at the end of the play where all the actors come out and tell you not to reveal the secret of who the murderer is. <laughs> they okay. like they take their bow and then a dude steps forward. And it's like this was really great having everybody here. Please don't tell anyone. We want this to be special for everyone. It's They've kind been of adorable. A on that for a long time. <laughs> Did you know the, who the murderer was before you went in? No, but I. I all right, they're doing their job. I kind of figured it out because I'm pretty smart. Okay, you don't need to toot your own horn. <laughs> but in the program for that play, they talked about the history of it and talked about how like different they brought on different directors just to kind of like update the show and like make sure it's still not that it's like not set in its original time period, but just to make sure, sure. that it like doesn't look shabby. And yeah. one bullet point was like in the seventies they added fake snow that melted. <laughs> <laughs> like random this this year we reopened it and it has snow coming in through yeah. the window i mean i thought the rapping granny that they had toward the end of the 90s was a little gauche but well they, that's just me yeah but you could put anybody in that in that one scene where that person gets killed so they just kind of <laughs> i think uh i think that never mind that that joke's gone <laughs> okay <laughs> left me bye Bye, Joe. I might edit that out. We'll see if I All find right. it. Um, I was reading a little bit more about Dame Ag- Agatha Christie, which I'm going to call her every time she's addressed. Uh-huh. And in late 1926, she apparently just disappeared for like 11 days. <laughs> that's pretty great. She had like a fugue state or something, right? Well, that's yeah, what she, she claims was, I mean, happened. Yeah. <laughs> She was she was born in 1890. She died in 1976. So this is like pretty early in her life. Um, she's like 36. Around, yeah. Yeah. She's like 36. Um, her husband has just asked her for a divorce. Her first husband. Uh huh. And she just she just leaves, and it becomes like this big, I don't know, tabloidy rigmarole. It was reported in the New York Times, and it like became this media sensation and the police were looking for her and they couldn't find her and um and then she you know she was finally found and contemporary reaction mostly just thought that she was faking it and like trying to drum up publicity i also heard that she was faking it to like punish or humiliate her husband <laughs> yes there's apparently a a biography of her called Agatha Christie and the 11 missing days by um Jared Cade that um that provides evidence that that she did it to embarrass her soon to be ex-husband. So, That's pretty great. Yeah. I like did you see the thing about Conan Doyle giving one of her gloves to a medium to try and what? like to try and locate her through like a séance? Man, that's like some O.J. Simpson <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well, it's O.J. Simpson and like, you know, magic crystal ball stuff, which I think is kind of awesome. Mm-hmm. That the guy who invented Sherlock Holmes was like, I need to go to a psychic to find my friend Dame Christie. Bring her back, please. For someone who writes detective novels, he doesn't really seem to know how <laughs> finding people works. Shh. 
Lots, it's, Didn't he believe in ghosts and stuff too, though? He was he was a he was an odd bird himself. I think so. I don't. Yeah. I can't remember who believed in ghosts and who was trying to debunk ghosts in I, that time I'm period. I'm pretty sure that he believed in ghosts and he like supernatural stuff. Ghosts. No. You want to talk? Oh, fairies. He he believed in fairies oh, too. So okay. <laughs> <laughs> we don't need to talk about Monsieur Doyle anymore. All right. <laughs> Anything else about Agatha Christie before we move on to the to the book? No, itself? I don't think so. I think we can move on to the book. I think okay. that's fine. Hit me. What what is uh, this? What is it called? The M- murder of Roger Ackroyd. The so murder me... of Roger Ackroyd. So who who did it? Well, we'll wait. <laughs> we'll get there. Okay. Okay. This takes place in the fictional town of Kings Abbott, England. I don't I don't know much more about counties of England, so just just Kings Abbott, England is what I got for you. All right. Uh it's narrated by a doctor named James Shepherd, uh who lives there with his sister Caroline and the two big uh, families in the town are the Ferrars and the Ackroyds. And uh Mrs. Ferrar uh recently murdered her husband. <laughs> But not everyone knows that. Okay. Uh, though uh, the doctor's sister, Caroline, who is a huge gossip, uh, is pretty sure that that's the case. And she is being blackmailed by someone, so she commits suicide. And she was romantically entangled with the titular Roger Ackroyd. So uh, now he is being, being blackmailed because presumably she told everything to him about this murder that she committed. Okay. All right. Following. This is a tangled web already. Already. We're barely even into the plot, and there's. Okay. We're like covered in cobwebs. Um, so the doctor pay, is a good friend of uh, Roger Ackroyd, and so he pays him a visit. And Roger Ackroyd tells him what's going on, and he's kind of worried, and. The doctor's like, okay, that's that sounds pretty bad, but you know, we'll we'll figure it out. Uh, there's a letter that Ackroyd has received, but he doesn't want to read it in front of the doctor, so the doctor leaves. Uh, and that night, Roger Ackroyd is murdered. Oh no! And it's one of those locked. Bum, bum, bum. It's one of those locked room murders, so uh, no one knows. Like, there's all sorts of people who are in various spots of the house when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, but the door was locked from the inside. Uh, and the way that uh, Shepard finds out about it is he gets a call at his house from someone at a train station in, like, Liverpool or something. Uh, that says, hey, I just killed the doctor. Or whatever. And uh, whatever, <laughs> not the doctor. Excuse me, I just killed Roger Ackroyd. Yeah, um, he's been found murdered, and uh, it's claiming to be. Oh, he doesn't. Oh God, I gotta go back. Excuse me, I'm tired. Uh, Shepard gets a call from the train station, and it's someone who either is or is claiming to be Ackroyd's servant, Parker. And he says the doc, the uh, the Mr. Ackroyd has been murdered. And the doctor's like, oh, that's kind of weird. And so he hustles back over, and Parker has no knowledge of this taking place. He doesn't. Okay, so somebody 
who claims to be Parker, yes, calls the doctor and says Dan Aykroyd has been murdered. Yes, not Dan Aykroyd. Okay. The guy from Roger Aykroyd has been murdered. <laughs> the guy, the guy from the Blues Brothers. Yeah, someone killed the Blues Brothers. Uh, get over here. Um, and so the suspects include here's your here's your murderers row here. All right, uh, Roger's sister-in-law, who is a neurotic hypochondriac. Um, okay, and she has some of her own personal debts. Uh, her daughter Flora, who is uh, kind of a nephew, uh, a niece by marriage, right? Okay. Um, Major Blunt, which is a great name. <laughs> Major Blunt. Major Hector Blunt, who's uh, referred to more than once as a big game hunter. Oh, what? Uh, and I, I really think Major Major Blunt killed her at four twenty. <laughs> I think. <laughs> I like that that they describe their like his friendship with Roger Ackroyd as one where like once a year, once every two years. Blunt just comes and hangs out for like three weeks when he's done like killing animals in Africa. <laughs> and he just brings a different like animal head with him every time. And I think that's maybe okay. it was I, I think it was him and it was in some sort of most dangerous game type situation. <laughs> Man is the most dangerous game, Andrew. Yeah, that's I mean that's what I've heard. Um, Especially when you lock him in a room and don't <laughs> let him go anywhere. <laughs> Uh, one of the other suspects is Jeffrey Raymond, who is Aykroyd's uh, personal secretary. His stepson, Ralph Payton. Uh, I don't. Every time I read that name on the page, I don't like it. I, his name is Ralph Payton. Sounds like an unfortunate name to me. Ralph Payton. Uh, and he is kind of a uh, a younger man with a lot of debt. He has trouble with money, and he's perpetually asking his his father for more money. Uh, or his his stepfather rather, uh, and he is uh, engaged to recently engaged to his step cousin Flora. So okay. that's like a weird that's like a weird thing. I don't even think I know this many people. Like <laughs> <laughs> uh, Parker... I hope there are this many people around when I get murdered. <laughs> uh, Parker is obviously a suspect. He's a snooping butler. Um, more than once during uh, the doctor's meeting with Aykroyd, he, they hear him outside the door listening. And they're like, What's that about? Oh, Parker's get away from the door. Um, and then a woman named Ursula Bourne, another wonderful <laughs> name, <laughs> uh, who is a parlor maid. And she, no one knows kind of where she came from. Her references are are good, but a little circumspect. They're a little suspicious. And uh, she resigned her post the afternoon of the murder after some sort of fight with Roger Ackroyd that no one knows anything about. So those are your suspects. Okay, so is the doctor investigating this crime the whole time, or... Does he bring in, I don't know, like Scotland Yard? Like who would in Well so so they're, <laughs> they're the only like English <laughs> law enforcement body that I know. Do they bring about. in the dudes who stand outside of Buckingham Palace in the yeah. red coats? The hack the guys. Hats, the hack guys. Do they bring in the hack, hack guys. guys that you're not allowed to talk to? Uh Her Majesty's secret hack guys. <laughs> not so secret. Those jackets are really bright. 
You don't know what secrets they got under those hats. Okay, good call. They could be hiding anything. And turkeys and everything. Um, no, he actually uh, gets mixed up with Inspector Hercule Poirot. All right. <laughs> one of uh, Christie's famous detectives. He is a Belgian Frenchman <laughs> of some kind. That sounds delicious. Um, ew. Uh, <laughs> and he recently moved to King's Abbott. Uh, uh, he's retired at this point. He stars in a bunch of other Christie books at various points in his life. This is later in his life. He's retired. He's not living under a, an assumed name. But since his name is vaguely French and the British keep mangling it, he doesn't correct them so that he doesn't draw mm-hmm. undue attention to himself. Uh, and he likes growing like vegetables in his garden or whatever. And he gets dragged into it because Flora, uh, the stepdaughter, um, or not this, yeah, the stepdaughter, um, re- reaches out to him and asks him to prove Ralph Payton innocent. Um, keep in mind that she is engaged to Ralph, um, okay. and she wants him to be proven innocent, even though he is a prime suspect because no one can find him. Okay. All right. They know he was... What? What? No, just go ahead. They know he was in town the day of the murder, even though, uh, according to all correspondence, Roger Ackroyd did not know that his stepson was in town uh, that day. All right. So it would be surprising that this might have happened. So what can you tell me? Can you tell me anything about the Christie verse? Like to what to what extent do her novels take place in like the same the same fictional place? There seems because you already mentioned the inspector is like a recurring character. So who else? Like what else happens? There's that? nothing else in this book that, as far as I understand, relates to other books. Um, the only other character that gets mentioned is the Watson to Poirot's uh, Sherlock, which is uh, Hastings, this guy named Hastings. All right. And he is not in this book because at this point, Poirot has retired from his detective operation. Sure. And Hastings is obviously starring in his own spinoff series and just that <laughs> they'll be united in some future book. Uh, correct. Okay. Uh, so... It is. It, I'm sure it takes place in some sort of Christie verse, uh, but this is not like we don't go to this town in other books, as far as I yeah. understand. Um, it seems like one of those more loosely connected ones, like all those Kevin Smith movies and um, like Stephen King books and and things. Well, and even Sherlock where Holmes, where they right? yeah where where like they exist in the same universe only because nothing that happens in any of the books or movies like directly contradicts stuff that happens in other ones and so it's just easy enough to pretend there's continuity there i guess yeah and and i think uh i had a good talk with my uh my sister about this actually before we recorded she's read a a bunch of christie novels and we were kind of comparing christie and holmes uh not holmes well doyle and doyle and holmes by extension and Christie seems far more interested than Doyle does in the like locked room scenario. All right, mm-hmm. so it's it's less about the kind of overall plot. Like I'm thinking back to when I read Baskervilles, and there's like we're running through the moor, and there's all sorts of crazy excitement, and 
characters are doing all sorts of things that distract you, right? And now we're temporarily in Texas or something with some other character. Is that Baskerville? No, that's that studying Scarlet. One? Okay, <laughs> you go to like Utah or something. Um, this one, but with here with the Christie book, it's much more like here's a contained space. Here are all the game pieces. Let's play Clue. You know. Okay. Um, you're not gonna. Nobody's gonna do anything surprising. It's really just about Poirot. Asking them a bunch of questions that the reader couldn't possibly have thought to ask, and him unraveling all of their personal stories until he finds the one that leads to murder. Sure. Now, is is this set up like a crime procedural? Like, is it an episode of Bones where the murderer is always like the third person who you talk to, and they appear for just long enough to appear innocuous, but long enough that the show is obviously making sure that you know who they are? No, but I will say that the book did take a couple a couple turns to convince me that that might be the case. Okay. Um, we will get yeah, to... How many f- fake-outs? Like, tell me about the structure. Okay. So a lot of the chapters get named after certain people. Um, and those are usually a chapter where Poirot is investigating them specifically. Like my boy, Major Blunt. <laughs> Major Blunt. <laughs> yeah, so when you find out pretty early in the book, actually, um, what happens is uh, the doctor goes back to the scene of the crime with Poirot, and they walk through it, and they take a look at the dagger in the back of Ackroyd's, like neck. Um, and they take a look at the fingerprints. Well, whose fingerprints do you think are on the dagger, Andrew? I don't know. Ackroyd's. Oh, my goodness. It's a terrible Gracious. lead. It's a red herring. You can't. The guy was probably wearing gloves. Um, and then there's like stuff like a chair was moved and Poirot keeps being like, that chair's important. And everyone's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> uh, and there's like the window was open and there were footprints on the windowsill and they match the boots that Ralph Patton wears and uh, they're trying to talk about who might have staged it or something like that. So that's kind of the locked room scenario that you're dealing with. The letter... So she's she's like interested in giving you all these pieces and then all that you and the protagonist has to do is like put them together? Yes. Or what? She's not introducing new plot points. She's introducing new information on the people um yeah kind of as poirot goes around and interrogates them or or or, uh eavesdrops on them which is the scene i was trying to talk about before i interrupted myself um (laughs) so what happens as the doctor becomes the hastings uh to uh for poirot and poirot in this book um is they go for walks a lot and they take a look at different stuff and they take a look at this summer house where they find like uh, a quill and a handkerchief or something. And, you know, those are going to be important later, which, of course, they are because they're the only okay. thing to talk about in that chapter. <laughs> and then they kind of come over a hill and they discover Flora and Major Blunt talking in the woods. And turns out they're in love. Oh, my goodness. Now, she was engaged to Ralph. Uh, for a variety of family reasons, right? And so right. he's so he's kind of sussing through this information and, and listening to this discussion. And then at the end of it, 
uh, he there they see this like glinting object in the river or the creek near them, and uh, Blunt and Flora walk away, and the inspector pulls it out, and it's a wedding ring that has uh, Ralph's initials inside of it. So it kind of leads you into like, whoa, what was their tryst? What's going on? Okay. Mm-hmm. But Ralph has a secret wife. That's not Flora. Secrets upon secrets. So many this. secrets. There are at least two people in this book who have names that are not their real names. Okay. One guy was like raised and he, he was his mother uh, bore him out of wedlock and then gave him a different name. And like Poirot makes this leap of logic that doesn't make like at the time. It's like, why did you ask that question? And other people in the scene go, why did you ask that question about his name? He's like, oh, I just uh, I asked I asked a question. I asked a question, <laughs> uh, and then it turns out that it's super important. There's a lot of that. Okay. Um, so that that kind of leads me to one of the big questions I wanted to ask you is: in 1926, this might have still been like pioneering the genre, you know, like coming up with things that would later become tropes. So now that Christie's work has been so thoroughly woven into the popular fabric like does does it all read like one big group of cliches that that follows a path that you're really familiar with and like relies a lot on crazy twists that we've kind of become tired of as as modern readers or what's what's the deal like how did you find this book in about five minutes i think i'm gonna do a big spoiler alert for the main twist, because there is a big twist to this book. Okay. But other than that, I don't think there are a lot of twists. The The overall structure of the book is kind of whether or not Ralph is the murderer is like the big question, because he's not around to be questioned. Poirot keeps telling people that Ralph couldn't have done it, and the doctor seems to agree with him, but he's not sure why. And then all these other characters uh, have great motives for killing Roger Ackroyd. Many of them have financial problems. You uh, discover that Ackroyd was a notorious miser. So all the people who either worked or lived in his house were kind of, if he should have been giving them money or could have given them more, they're all hurting for it. Um, Like Snoopy Butler? Yeah, like Snoopy Butler. um, uh, Major Blunt might have done it for Flora. You know, I for a long time was kind of leaning towards it being Flora because she was the one who went to go get the inspector. And it seemed like a really good way to, like, deflect attention to her. Sure. You've got this secret wife who might have done it because that would protect Ralph or or out of a fight with Ralph. Um, You've got another woman who is asking... Uh, the doctor about poisons really early in the book, so she's a prime suspect because nobody seems to like her either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just always great. <laughs> There's just that character that no one really it's like. Everyone's like, I don't really like her. She's kind of annoying. Uh, that's. Mis- I'm sure she has a dark secret or something she's, that makes her that, that explains everything about her. Yeah, most of those people. Everybody's got a secret, and what's great is about two thirds of the way of the book. Poirot gets them all in a room and says, everyone's holding something back from me. I don't know what it is, but you need to tell me. <laughs> You're all suspects. 
Uh, and then one by one through the next couple chapters, everyone comes up to him and is either interrogated or kind of confesses some secret that is not the murder. It's not the crime, but yeah. it exonerates them from guilt. <clears throat> yes. And he talks a lot about his method, which involves using the little gray cells in your head. <laughs> You mean the brain? Yes. Does he mean the brain? Ugh. Well, he's a Belgian Frenchman, so he speaks weirdly. That's kind of kind of the conceit there, I suppose. Is Belgian French toast a thing? Every time you say Belgian Frenchman, I just... I want a big old piece of Belgian French toast. Are you just trying to combine a Belgian waffle with French toast? Maybe I am. <laughs> so what if I am? Um... I don't think to to your actual you're you know, okay to your actual question from before I don't think it's too tropey. Um, it does it's reference. Thing. It's not a real thing. No. Okay. Uh, it does reference detective novels a lot. Um, it like references Sherlock by name at one point. You know, references Watson. Caroline, the sister, and the doctor are constantly talking about, like, well, in crime novels, it it might go this way, or this isn't <laughs> some detective story for you to just blab about, um, which is kind of weird. But did she invent like being meta or something? That, I don't that seems know. Like but a kinda, pretty modern inclination. It kind of feels that way, you know. I can't remember. We I've tried to note it every time I've read a book that's kind of self self referential about other pop pop culture like that and this is definitely one of the earlier references i can think of you know um but there's all okay there's two things i want to talk about okay one there's a mahjong scene sounds suspenseful it's really weird (laughs) because halfway through the book the doctor, his sister, and two characters you've never met before and will never see again sit down to play Mahjong. Mm-hmm. And they're just talking about the murder because it's the, the talk of the town, you know. And they're interrupting almost everything they say with Mahjong words that I don't understand. <laughs> and the the book takes no pains to tell me how Mahjong is played. <laughs> I'm trying to think what a comparable modern book scene would read like or something like it it ha- it might almost be chess. I mean, I guess like... if you didn't I guess if you saw that that scene in Casino Royale and you didn't know how to play Texas Hold'em, you'd be yeah, really confused. Yeah, yeah. But even then, I felt like that because it can show it to you, it doesn't have to like devote dialogue to it. Or maybe if like two characters were talking to each other while they were having a sword fight or something. <laughs> do, you, do you just mean like the Princess Bride? No, I mean not necessarily, but <laughs> or maybe I mean every, I think every fantasy novel has that thing where like some young hero is training with with someone who will be a big inspiration to him before he dies all heroically, and they're like talking about sword fighting but then also maybe about women or adventure or something like while they're sword fighting yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um i know we i know thinking of every stupid 
pulpy fantasy book I've ever read. <laughs> <laughs> well, because at that point, everyone's always sword fighting, so you can kind of talk about whatever you want while sword fighting's going on. Um, before I move on from the Mahjong scene, which in and of itself is just a bizarre thing to have happen. It's feel- I think to a 1920s audience, maybe it would have been like football or something like something really recognizable like yeah that's just kind of going on in the background i don't know the audience is on the edge of its seat about the mahjong scene in agatha christie book well like while they're talking about the fact that poirot was in a town where they think ralph might be hiding this one woman just says why dear me i'm mahjong all the time and i never noticed it what does that mean i'm mahjong all the time I don't know. And then later, there was a struck me funny that I want to that I want to share with you real quick. Okay. Or or kind of struck me like struck me. This is a hundred years old, and maybe we can't say this anymore. Okay. <laughs> um, a struck you racist. Yeah. Oh, terrible. Um, they're playing and and they're talking uh, and they're taking their time. And Caroline says, "If you would only play a little quicker, dear." The Chinese put down the tile so quickly it sounds like little birds pattering. And then there's just a one-sentence paragraph that says, For some minutes we played like the Chinese. All right. And that Fine. <laughs> that's up there with earlier in the book when someone is talking about a debt they have to some Scotsman. And the doctor remarks something like, uh, Yes, their names are Scotch, but I detect some Semitic in their bloodline or something like that. Ooh, yikes. Which is like, right. that, that one's a little worse. Goo. I mean, <laughs> uh, I even, like, maybe that's just a Chinese stereotype that's fallen out of fashion. Like, you don't, you don't hear about, oh, the Chinese, they're so fast at Mahjong anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe that's more of a British thing in, like, British colonial ventures in in asia kind of bringing back mahjong and then them having opinions about playing mahjong maybe yeah i don't know i've i've never played actual mahjong i've only played computer mahjong which i know is yeah, not I've the same i played like windows 3.1 <laughs> mahjong <laughs> um anyway so i know we i know we want to wrap in a few minutes so i do want to talk about the twist so okay uh if you do want to read this book and it's it's worth a read if if you are interested in mystery novels. I think that you should probably uh, give this one a go. But I think talking about its legacy requires talking about uh, the ending of the book. Uh, so I'm going to do that now, and you can tune back in in a few minutes, or just come back and listen to this part uh, after you read the book. Cool. <laughs> Great. We'll wait. Andrew's going to wait. I'm just going to talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. In the last, the second to last scene of the book, Andrew, uh, Poirot has gathered all of the suspects to his house again, and he's like, "Listen, guys, I know one of you killed this man, and it wasn't Ralph. He's not here. The killer is here. Now the suspects are all there, as is the doctor." Mm-hmm. And he ex- the way you say that makes me uh huh makes me suspicious. Uh huh. And so Poirot explains why it's not a bunch of different people. He also explains a whole bunch of facts about the crime that we did not really know before. Like the the reality of the murder hinges on the fact that the, that a dictaphone salesman came by once, which was mentioned, which was okay. mentioned briefly in like chapter four. Okay, 
All right. One of the key pieces of evidence being that Roger was was talking to someone, and it was not him talking. It was the dictaphone repeating him. Okay, whatever, fine. All right. And then uh, he said, you know, Prado says, all right, someone better confess to me before the night's out, or else in the morning I'm going to tell the inspector, the actual uh, police, that I know who did it. And everyone's like, oh, 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 oh. And he steps outside with the doctor, and he's asking, "What do you think's going on?" And the doctor's like, "Oh, I don't know. I don't know what you're gonna do, what you're gonna do next." And then Pardo turns it around on him and accuses the doctor of it, because it all comes down to the time frame that the doctor gave him, and that uh, it took five extra minutes for him to walk from the house to the gate. And what would he have done in those five minutes? But okay, but kill. Uh, Roger Ackroyd. And then there's a whole bunch of other circumstantial evidence about uh, the doctor's knowledge of machines and the doctor knowing about the the Farrar poison murder because he would be the only person who could have detected that. And so he was the one blackmailing the both of them, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is like, this feels like an Encyclopedia Brown ending to me but get this andrew you corner somebody with a bunch of circumstantial evidence and hope that they confess to you (laughs) but well but it definitely points it does point to him because everyone else has been ruled out but get this sure sure i didn't say this earlier the whole book has been from the doctor's perspective what yeah it's all first person so how does that yeah color the rest of the book all right that's kind of cool so then what happens is if maybe a little weird it is a little if weird. i was doing that i would be thinking well then or whatever then he goes over and asks major blunt a question and i was like oh this is interesting even though i know that i did it i totally did it it was me i did it so here's here's the explanation you get there so at an earlier point in the novel uh Poirot asks the doctor if he's been keeping a record of any of these events and the doctor's like yeah i i actually know that hastings has done that for you before here's what i've been writing and the and the inspector looks at it and he's like oh it's very interesting you haven't included very much about yourself that's kind of interesting you haven't editorialized very much at all, which is the kind of, I guess, the first clue, the first big clue that it might be the doctor. And then uh, there's a separate chapter at the end where the doctor is like, you know, and the inspector said he wouldn't turn me in, but maybe I should kill myself. Whoa. He's like, maybe you could just take some extra sleep medicine and this would all go away. What kind of an inspector is that? A like, retired not... one who doesn't care about the law. He just cares about solving murders. Uh... <laughs> uh, and the the doctor basically says that that's his plan because he doesn't want his sister to find out that it was him. Uh, and that he was writing this book, hopefully so that he could publish it and, you know, have written the one time that Poirot didn't actually solve the murder. Like he got it wrong. Okay. Uh, but he did have real... But no dice. He had motives for the murder. His his motive for the murder was not to prove the inspector wrong. His motive was blackmail, etc. Um, but he then continued to write everything down and help the inspector with everything so that he could uh, write this account of Poirot yeah. messing up. All right. And then it ends with him 
he's like the last sentence is something about being upset that Porto decided to move there and grow vegetables. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I would have gotten away with it if it weren't if it weren't for you meddling retired detectives. <laughs> so I think that's a pretty cool twist. It's it's not telegraphed super well, but I guess you could go back and find it kind of sixth sense style. Um that's the way those mystery novels are a lot of the time is they feel kind of cobbled together and if you go through and read it again knowing what happens at the end you can you can piece it together but in the moment it's not really something that you're looking for. Yeah, and I feel like I'm having trouble coming down on either side of the fence with this book. The the main receptions of this book have been pretty clearly that was a dumb ending or that's genius and i think i'm somewhere in between um i was reading going really (laughs) (laughs) yeah i can't decide either i mean it's kind of a mind trap it is a bit of a mind trap yeah especially because if he's the murderer why did he include a mahjong chapter why does he include so much time talking about how kind of dumb and annoying his sister is, even though she's a gossip and figures out crimes like this all the time just by gossiping. It's just, a, it's, you know, just color for his book, I guess. I don't know. It's cool, though, I guess. I liked it. I thought it was a fun time. I guess we're not in the spoiler zone anymore. I'm no, back. I think we left. We left the spoiler zone. It's a fun book. The I like Pardo. I think he's neat. He's a little eccentric. He speaks in kind of goofy English and and some fun <laughs> he, and some fun French stuff. He actually, like, there's a quote from him, I don't know if it's from this book or another one, where he kind of likes being the foreigner so that mm-hmm. he can, people treat him differently, you know? Uh, sure. Which I think is neat. They don't Maybe just, they're like, guard, guard is down a little bit or something. Yeah, or it's actually... Feel like or, he doesn't understand fully what they're talking about or something? I think I it's, it's more that it's like disarming or it actually heightens their defenses in a way that's helpful to him because then he kind of okay. like sees what people do when they respond to certain situations. Ah, gotcha. Um, so, yeah, that's the that's the murder of Roger Ackroyd. Uh, All right. Prime novel if he's, I've ever read one. He's dead. Roger Ackroyd's dead. Let's No more Blues Brothers movies. All the Ackroyds. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Sorry. The Ackroyds are gone. <laughs> all right um how, I, I can't even segue i'm too tired to segue. Uh, so, so i'm just gonna say you should you can email us about segues i guess at overduepod at gmail.com and you can also send us messages on our twitter and facebook pages at twitter.com slash overdue pod and facebook.com slash overdue pod of those i think we probably check facebook the most frequently but we've been getting a lot of really great tweets lately and so um, I've gotten in the habit of checking that feed a lot more and, you know, replying to people and sometimes just favoriting what you're saying and not replying. So that's its own reply, I guess. Yeah, I know that the I ended up reading Agatha Christie because Cindy suggested it in a tweet to us, which was really nice. And uh, we've gotten a couple other recommendations on Facebook. I know uh, Emily gave us a shout out in a message on Facebook. Um mm-hmm. And Eric tweeted at us talking about our back catalog and, and binge listening. We so we totally support binge listening to this program. Uh, if you'd like to do that, you can head over to OverduePodcast.com where you can find all the back episodes of the show. You can find our iTunes page where you can subscribe. You can also rate and review us, which takes no time at all. Um, actually, like five seconds or ten seconds or whatever. 
Um, and we really appreciate that. We read all of those and they, they make our day. Andrew and I talk mm-hmm. about them every time. Definitely does. Yeah. And, uh, that's where you can subscribe. If I didn't say that already, you can also subscribe to our RSS feed through the website and you can also purchase the books through our Amazon links. Uh, that's a great way to support us, uh, and support us both purchasing future books that you might recommend, uh, or paying for hosting of all this great audio content that we're producing. Yeah. Um, and then real quick before we close, last week's episode on the marriage plot, there were just a couple of things I wanted to mention. Uh, one is that we talked briefly about Middlesex, mm-hmm. the Jeffrey Eugenides book that we read previously, and we said that the main character in that book was uh, transgender when he's actually intersex, which I totally knew but had just forgotten, I guess. And did we talk about that in, on in that like show, right? Yeah, 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 like really briefly. So, um, so... Yeah, correct that. And then also the first version of that file that went up had a 30 second silence where you got up to go talk to Laura that I did not edit out. So (laughs) the file that's up there now does not have that anymore. But if you got that and thought it was weird, just know that it it was uh, told to me about 12 hours after I uploaded it and then I fixed it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So some of you might have that version. Um treasure it always it'll become a collector yeah laura says hi i guess i don't know (laughs) um next week i'm gonna be reading mr penumbra's 24-hour bookstore by robin sloan so that's gonna be fun i think it's a novel books about books books about books um so uh thank you for listening everybody uh we really appreciate it and until next week try to be happy